Have you ever considered just how audacious it is to ask God for forgiveness? Uh, the being who has done nothing evil ever, who has never had an evil thought cross his mind. And then there's us, right, in contrast, who have intentionally chosen sin again and again, even though we've been given everything by God. And yet we get to come to him and ask him for forgiveness. That's an amazing thing. And it's not only something that we can do, it's something that we should do is something that glorifies God when we come to him to ask for forgiveness. But it is a crazy thing to think about just how amazing it is that we can ask God for forgiveness from our sins. And not only does God forgive, he also sets us on the right path. He shows us how to live for him. He doesn't just wipe our slate clean. He doesn't just give us a second chance. He also comes into our heart in his Holy Spirit. He's patient with us and he teaches us how to walk in his ways. And he invites us into a relationship and even friendship with him. And that's what Psalm 25 is all about. So this is another Psalm of David. And David is clearly confessing his sin in this Psalm. That is clearly the focus of this Psalm. Three times he mentions his sin. In verse 7, he mentions the sins of his youth. In verse 11, he mentions how great his sin is. And in verse 18, he says, forgive all my sins. So David's going through something in this, in this psalm, but it seems like the root problem um, of these attacks from the enemies, of the shame that he's concerned about, the root problem of all of that seems to come back to David's sin. And so he's asking for God's deliverance from his physical circumstances, but mostly he's asking for forgiveness of his sin. David understands what his greatest problem is, clearly. So this is an acrostic poem, which means that each verse in Hebrew starts with a different Hebrew letter in the order of the alphabet. So for us, you know, A to Z, right, would be kind of the idea. So each verse starts with a different letter, and we see this in a few different psalms. This is a, a, a mnemonic device, so it's a device for memory to make it easier to memorize this passage for, you know, children, Hebrew children back in the day. And so we see this in a few different psalms. We'll see it in Psalm 119. That's the most famous one. But let's kind of dig into this psalm and see exactly what it's all about. It's a long psalm, so we need to just jump right in. So the first section we see is verses 1 to 5, where David gives a prayer for God's guidance. A prayer for God's guidance. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. I love this poetic statement of I lift up my soul. This is a deeply personal thing. It's an interesting way to refer to worship. Worship isn't just empty ritual if you're a believer in God, if you know the true God of the universe. It's not just empty acts. It's a giving of the very self to God. It's lifting up yourself. It's disclosing yourself to him. You know, this is actually contrasted with the words in the last psalm. In Psalm 24, 4, it said, He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false. So in contrast <clears throat> to the person who lifts up their soul to God is the person who lifts up their soul to what is false. And we saw that if you lift up your soul to what is false, you can't come into the presence of God, into the house of God, according to Psalm 24, 4. So David is lifting up his soul. He's giving himself fully to God. And he's entrusting himself to God. So his trust is in God. That's what it means to lift up your soul. 
And who else is there to trust in? Right? It's easy to see this as a throwaway statement, but it's so significant where and in whom your trust is placed. David understands that. So he starts off by saying that his trust is in God. He's placed everything in his hands. And he asks that he won't be put to shame, right? He asks he won't be put to shame. This is speaking to being outwardly disgraced by this, these circumstances. He's concerned that his enemies will win the day and he'll be exposed to the world and be ashamed. And so he's praying for God's protection from that. Look at verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So here he expresses certainty that God won't let him be ashamed. So he's asked for that in verse 2, and now he's saying, I know it won't happen. And then he talks about waiting on the Lord, waiting for God. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? We'll see this a few times in coming Psalms as well. Well, this certainly isn't a passive thing. It's easy to think of it in a passive sense of just sitting on your hands. But really what this means is it means having an active dependence on God. It's choosing to trust in God and what he will do rather than in your own actions. It's easy for us to take things into our own hands, to think that the problems that we face in our life can be fixed by us, that we are the captains of our souls, right? That we're the masters of our fate. But instead, David realizes that God's the one who can fix his problems. And so he's waiting on God's action, on his timing. That's a difficult thing. That's not an easy thing. And so he's saying he's waiting for God. And he knows that his hope is in God's future action. There's a contrast here between those who wait and those who are treacherous. He says they are wantonly treacherous in verse 3. The idea there. When it says wantonly, it's literally meaning with empty hands or without cause. These are people who are treacherous, who are betraying others, but there's really no reason for them to do it. Um, this is the kind of sin that is just done just for the sake of the sin, just out of the, the pure enjoyment of the sin. People that betray others simply because they want to betray others. This is the worst aspect of sin that it can be enjoyable in itself for those who are wicked. You know, there's a time, in a sense, to deceive others. It's, it's very rare, but there are those times in Scripture where God will deceive someone or he'll tell someone to deceive someone else, or he'll reward someone who is deceptive. Typically, it's when there's a much greater sin. Think of the uh, midwives in Exodus, um, the beginning of Exodus, where they're lying to Pharaoh about the, the moms giving birth and they're, they're protecting these innocent children. Well, there's a much greater crime that's going to happen, which is the murder of infants. And so they choose instead to deceive. So there, there are times, rarely, where deception is warranted. But here, there's no reason for them to deceive. They simply want to engage in sin and see David fall. That's their desire. And so David prays against them. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So he begins to plead with God for specific things in verses 4 through 7. He, he prays that God would make known his ways. This is a repeated word throughout this psalm. It's repeated seven times. 
So this is clearly in focus for the entire psalm. The idea of ways is this is a place where you would walk, a path, right? And whenever this word comes up, it should make us think about Psalm 1, which we go back to so often, right? Where Psalm 1 laid out those two paths, those two ways that we can walk in, the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. There are two ways that we can go in life. Here, though, this word ways is plural. It's not a singular way, meaning just a course of life. It's ways, plural. And some commentators point out that this use of the plural may be focusing on the specific repeated actions that lead us to walk in God's way. In other words, the way that we follow God's path is through making certain decisions every single day. It's not a simply a one-time thing. We can think of it that way, as if at one point you just decided to be righteous or you decided to be wicked. But in reality, every decision we make every day is a vote for our future self. It's, it's a decision to head toward a certain path, to progressively become more either wicked or righteous. And so this word is instructive for us. We have to think carefully about how we live. And D- David's asking God to instruct him in these ways, in the decisions he should make, in the, the law of God. He's asking God to lead him in the truth, to guide him, to help him, not just to be forgiven, but to live a righteous life. David longs to have his life be walking on this path in these ways. And and what an amazing thing that God doesn't leave us wondering about how we should live, right? Many people uh, are unsure about what is the right or wrong thing to do. For us as Christians, right, if you read God's word, if you study God's word, you know in every life's decision what is right and what is wrong. There may be some complicated issues. It may be difficult at times, but we have all the tools that we need right here to help discern when something is sinful or when it is righteous. We don't need to question God. We don't need to, you know, to outthink God. We need to simply depend on God and listen to his word. Look at verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Notice the repeated word here. I'm sure you saw it. You heard that. It's, it's remember. Three times David in these verses says the word remember, and this is kind of the theme for these verses. Uh, remembering refers to not simply just knowing something, but actually acting upon that knowledge. This is very confusing sometimes for people when we say, God doesn't remember your sins anymore. He forgets your sins. Um, what we're saying is not that God has some sort of lack of knowledge, that there's a gap in God's knowledge, that he can choose to turn off certain information in his mind. What we're saying is that God doesn't act upon certain realities. He treats them as if they never happened. That's what we're saying when we say God doesn't remember our sins anymore. And here, he's, that's what he's doing. He's calling for God to act in a certain way. He says first, remember mercy. He says, look back, God, to how you've acted in the past. Look to your character and act upon that knowledge now. Be the same kind of God you were back then, the merciful and gracious God. He says then, remember not my sins. In other words, forget the sins of my past. Overlook them. And then he says, remember me. Don't forget me, God. Act upon your relationship with me and rescue 
me. That's what remembering refers to. Um, he says the word, remember, mercy, right? At first, mercy is related to the word for womb. So compassion here, that mercy, is like the closeness and the love that a mother has for the child in her womb. That's the kind of connection we're seeing, that deep compassion. He says, remember steadfast love. That's that word hesed, which is God's covenant loyalty. His steadfast love based upon his covenant promises to his people. And he's, he's banking on the fact that God doesn't change, right? He says, remember your mercy and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. He's saying, go all the way back to the beginning, God. This is the kind of God that you were. You haven't changed. And so he's banking that God will be the same God now that he was in the past. And he's praying for God to act in that way. And then he asks in verse 7 that God wouldn't let his sins stand in the way of God's love and forgiveness. It's interesting. He says, he says here, remember not the sins of my youth. It's interesting that we, we kind of know this instinctively that the youth is a time where we make bad decisions, right? Many uh, life-altering sins were made in your youth in a time where you were driven more by your passions than by wisdom or experience. And David's saying, I've been foolish in my youth. I need you to overlook those sins. Don't remember them anymore. Put them away. Now, of course, if you are young, if you're still a youth, don't let this be an excuse to be foolish. Learn from the examples we see in Scripture and choose to follow God at a young age and to avoid all the, the heartbreak and the damage that can come from sins of the youth. But either way, we have, we have hope, right? If we've been foolish in the past, we have hope that we can look to God and receive his forgiveness, that he'll overlook our sins. We see the next section here, verses 8 to 14, where we see a prayer based on God's goodness. Prayer based on God's goodness. So his plea in this section is on the basis of who God is. I love that even though he's in distress, he chooses to look to God and to examine and focus on God's character. And this again, this is a huge theme in the Psalms, is what are you focusing on? There's a shift here to third-person language. So it, it indicates a shift in the Psalm to a new section as he begins to speak not to God at this point, but about God to others. Look at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. This is great. I love God is good and upright. So his goodness allows us to ask him for forgiveness. We know that he is good so we can come to him in confidence. But he, his being upright seems to indicate that he has to punish us. Right? His uprightness means that he is just, that he makes the right decisions. So how do we reconcile the justice and the goodness or the love and the judgment of God. Well, both of these, we know, are reconciled. That tension is resolved on the cross of Jesus Christ, that he shows the goodness of God and his love for us to welcome us into his family and the justice of God as Jesus was punished to take the, the punishment that we deserved. That's how those two things are reconciled. So God is good and he is up, upright. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Man, we see this as a big theme in Scripture as well. God loves to save the humble, those who will lower themselves and say, I have nothing to offer you, God. I'm depending fully on you. I heard an old preacher say, all you need to follow Jesus is nothing. 
But the problem is most people don't have it, <laughs> right? We, we need nothing, but most people, they, they can't have nothing. They have to come with something in their hands to say, I'm giving this to you. We, we hold on to our pride and saying, I'm in some way earn something from God. But no, what you need to be saved is nothing. You need to come with empty hands. Uh, often we're too busy trying to bring something to God, even if it's just our filthy rags, saying, God, love me on the basis of this thing that I've done. That's not how it works. God loves to save a humble people who understand that we have nothing to give, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, as the song says. Look at verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness to those who keep his covenant and his promises. Again, he, here he's looking at the character of God as the foundation for his prayer. He's remembering who God is. And this harkens back to Exodus 34 when God reveals his name to Moses. And he says, right, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those are the same words as verse 10. So David remembers who he is, and he's saying, this is the basis for my prayer. Verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This verse sits at the center of the psalm, which is very significant. So this is the central truth in the psalm. And he's, he's not denying that his sin is great. He's saying the very fact that my sin is so great, it's so terrible, is the idea that I need God to fix it. There's no doubt when you see the fullness of your sin that you can't fix that reality. But the amazing thing is that God gets glory in forgiving sin. The death of Jesus on the cross brought forgiveness to sinners, but it also brought glory to God because he gets to cover our great sins. He gets to show how much greater, how much more merciful he is, and that therefore he is worthy of praise. So we should pray this way, God. God, answer my, my, my prayer, answer my, you know, forgive my sin. Do it for your name's sake because it brings glory to you because this is who you are. This is in your character. So God, forgive me. Look at verses 12 to 14. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So there's a rhetorical question being asked here, and it's really pointing to what God will do for the person who fears him. That's, that's the idea. What is God going to do as a result? What, de what defines this man who fears the Lord and understands that he needs to humble himself before God? Well, he's going to receive guidance. God's going to instruct him, right? He's going to receive wholeness. It says his soul will abide in well-being. He's going to have a legacy. His offspring will inherit the land. And he's going to even have friendship with God. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. So the person who fears God, who's humbled himself, who's begged God for mercy and received this forgiveness, is going to receive everything from God as well. Well, we got to finish this up. Let's get to verses 15 to 22, where we see prayer for God's deliverance. Prayer for God's deliverance. So in this last section, he's asking for deliverance. And this, again, appears to be a problem largely of his own making. David understands that he is the problem here. 
And who, who listening to this can identify to some degree with this situation? Listen to verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So he's snared and he can't get out. He needs God to deliver him from this trap that he's entered into, presumably because of his own sin. So he fixes his eyes on God. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. It's clear here that his sin is the root problem. There are other problems here, right? We see, the, the I think, the outflow, the effects of sin. He's afflicted. He's lonely. He's distressed. He's troubled. He's separated himself from God by his sin, and he's being tormented by his enemies. But he always turns back to his core problem, which is his sin. So often we come to God praying in a way that God would take away the symptoms of our problem, that God would fix things outwardly in our lives, and if he would do that, we would basically be happy if he would just kind of fix those things externally that aren't going right. But a wise person understands the root problem is within. It's in the heart. And so David is asking here for God to fix the root problem, not just to cover up the symptoms, not just to medicate him, but to really give him what he actually needs, which is a solution to his sin, to forgive him and to bring him back on the right path. Look at verse 19. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Violent hatred here usually refers to, to bloodshed. In fact, in Genesis 6, 11 to 13, that term is, is the reason that's given for the flood coming upon the earth this kind of violence that's happening upon the earth. But he prays here, here that integrity and uprightness would prevail over this kind of hatred. And, and this can only happen if God is in charge. I think he's referring here, when he says integrity and uprightness, I think he's referring to his own integrity and uprightness. He's asking that God would forgive him and teach him to live in his ways so that he can be strengthened and preserved by that strength of character in his own heart. He wants God to sanctify him and to protect him through a life lived in righteousness. So he's praying that God would change him and protect him through that. And then he ends in verse 22. He says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The psalm ends with the waiting continuing. He, he's asked God for a resolution to all these things, but now he waits. And we see this prayer of David at the very end, a prayer that was about an individual and his request to God. We see here that this is meant to be a prayer for the nation of Israel. It's meant to be a corporate prayer, which is instructive for us. These prayers that we have here, even if they're individual, they're meant to apply to God's people. They're meant to have application for us that we can pray in a similar way to how David prayed. In other words, this is meant to be our prayer. So have you, forget, have you received the forgiveness of God? Have you been washed anew today? Even as you're listening to this, have you taken time to confess your sins to God, to receive again the friendship of God, the welcome of your Father? Are you seeking to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God? 
to remember that we have nothing to give. And that should give us more joy, knowing that God receives us simply because of his character and his mercy. Are you seeking to follow in the paths he set before you in his word? Are you asking God to shape your character, to make you into a new person? God loves to answer all of those prayers. Those are big things to ask, audacious things to ask, but they bring glory to God. So pray with the psalmist for God's forgiveness and his guidance today.